Uh, these are very uh, strong. These are very hard-hitting words this evening. Uh, so let's pray and ask God's help uh, as we come to his word this evening. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you for these words uh, that you speak to us. Please help us clearly as we come to hear you speak to us this evening. Please encourage us. Uh, please challenge us. Uh, please point us to Jesus. Please save us, we pray, because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody uh, loves a good hero, but who is your particular hero? Is it a superhero? Is it a, a sports personality? Maybe we've got some Geelong supporters here uh, tonight where you know, someone yesterday particularly was your hero. Maybe it's a historic figure. Maybe it's someone you know personally. Maybe it's a teacher that you had at school, or maybe it's a parent, or maybe it's your big brother or sister. Um, who would be in your top five heroes of all time? Who would make that list? Okay, I'm just throwing it out. Anybody want to throw out some names? Who would make your top five list? Who would be your hero? Nobody. Wonderful. Come on, don't be shy. You could be my hero. You could be, thank you, Arthur. Thank you. I can, I'm very happy to be here. I don't understand why everybody's laughing when you say that, but, um, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Anybody else? Mariah Carey. Mariah Carey at the front here. Good. Nice. Anybody else? So we have Mariah Carey or Sam McGeown. Wow, we're really <laughs> scraping the barrel um, this evening. That's brilliant. Um, what about this person? Would this person make your list? King Charles. Have you ever considered considering King Charles as your hero? I reckon probably nobody here this evening would have had King Charles on their top five hero list of all times. And that's despite the fact that King Charles is all over the news at the moment. He's kind of risen to prominence over these last few weeks. The idea, I think, of king and hero, however, is, is pretty laughable these days. We have nothing probably personally against King Charles, but if we were to be honest with ourselves, I reckon most of us would be pretty cynical that any king today, any royal figure, could also be hero material. But if we're cynical today about the limitations and the feelings of royalty, the people of Israel had much more reason to be cynical. You see, the beginning of, of King David's life, you know, David, you know, one of the great famous kings of the Bible, seemed to, you know, promise so much at the beginning of his reign. But in the end, he turned out to be weak, a weak ruler. Remember, as we, we looked through last term, you know, was, you know, towards the end of David's rule, you know, he has a concubine in his bed as a bit of a bed warmer. David turned out to be a weak ruler whose reign was immersed in scandal murder and adultery. You know, King Solomon, you know, he's set up as being the wise king who would herald in God's kingdom on earth. But again, Solomon's reign is littered with moral failure and pride. And one by one, each subsequent queen 
is exposed to be a fraud. You know, the people people of Israel, you know, they tried to, to look to other kings of Israel for salvation, but all they ever got was disappointment. None of them ever lived up to God's design as king. You know, they were far from being heroes, but rather constantly led the people into rebellion and into sin. But in Psalm 110, we have the picture of another hero, one last hero, a king who is worth our attention, our worship, our respect. And that's what we're going to look to see. We're going to look at this heroic king from Psalm 110. Now, the first thing that we notice about this king is, is that he is unlike any other king. We read that the Lord, the Lord that David's referring to in capital letters, that's Yahweh, that's God. And God speaks to someone that David addresses as my Lord. So David's Lord is asked to sit in power next to God at his right hand. But it begs the question, who is God speaking to? Who is God bestowing authority to? Who is David calling my Lord? Matthew 22 You know, the Pharisees and other religious leaders, they've been asking Jesus questions to try and trip him up, to try and trick him. But in verse 42, Jesus asks his own question. He asks, you know, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The Pharisees know their Old Testament scriptures. They know what 2 Samuel teaches, and so they reply, oh, it's David's. But then Jesus asks them and quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to ask him anymore. The point that Jesus was making and the point that eventually stopped the religious leaders from from bugging him anymore was as if the Messiah was just a human descendant of God, then he should call David Lord because, well, you know, that's respectful, isn't it? When you think about King Charles, you know, King Charles might be, you know, the king, but over the past few weeks, all the honor all the praise, all the glory has been given to his deceased mother. And not just to his deceased mother, but all the talk has been about the previous kings and the the previous queens before even the queen. That's the direction that respect, it flows in. But in David's case, that respect is, is flowing in the other direction. Jesus is saying that David knew that the true king to come, it wasn't just going to be some other human king. He wasn't just a human king in a long line of kings who would fail. No, he, the promised king, was in essence God in the flesh. And the reality, you know, of this truth from Psalm 110, it echoes throughout the rest of the New Testament. In, in Acts chapter 2, 
Peter uses the, that first verse of, of Psalm 110 at the end of his speech on the day of Pentecost to call the crowds to repentance. At the end of his speech, he's speaking to the crowds and he says, for it was not David who ascended into the, into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And this truth, you know, continues to reverberate in the first chapter of Hebrews. You know, there the writer, he, he quotes the, the words of David and applies them directly to Jesus, the Son of God. You know, the one appointed heir over all things, the one through whom the whole universe is made. He's described as the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, who sustains all things by his powerful word. And after dying on the cross, he rises triumphantly and sits down at the right-hand side of God, as his Father has invited him to do so. The reality is, you know, we always needed a son of David that was greater than David. One who would be anointed not just with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. One who would not just slay Goliath, but death itself. One who would win his bride, not by shedding another man's blood, but by spilling his own blood. One whose end wasn't the grave, but the throne of heaven itself. And such a king we have in Jesus Christ. Look at the rest of, of David's description of this, of this Christ throughout those verses in Psalm 110. Where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know, God's right hand, it's a position of, of ultimate power and authority. The enemies being a footstool for God's hero. It's, it's a picture of complete subjugation. If anything, it's a picture of complete humiliation for God's enemies. Verse 2, you know, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over, you know, your surrounding enemies. The scepter, you know, it's a symbol of a, of a monarch's sovereignty and power. You remember, we saw that in the... Um, the, the funeral this week of Queen Elizabeth, when we saw it sitting on the queen's coffin, it's a symbol of sovereignty and power. But look at the power that the Messiah has. He will rule supreme over even his enemies. Not just the subjects, but over his enemies. You know, verse 3, it's a bit difficult to, uh, to, to translate, but the CISB that we usually use at church, it's a bit more obscure, but the NIV uh, might be a bit better. You know, your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. And what it seems to be saying is that the Lord God gives his power, he gives his authority to his promised Messiah. And when he does that, he, he, there will be a large army with him who will be like the, the dew of the morning. That is, they'll be fresh for battle. That's probably what the picture means. We're not too sure, but that's probably what it means. We'll just skip over verse 4 for a minute, but verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. That word crush here means to crush or to shatter beyond recovery. It's a picture of total, unmatched, and unchallenged strength. 
You know, if Marvel was to make a movie here of Psalm 110, the action scenes wouldn't last very long. They'd be over pretty quickly. It'd be a pretty boring movie. Because actually, you know, if anything, the action scenes would seem pointless as this hero would win without much of a fight every single time. Verse 6, you know, it's, it's a pretty horrific picture, isn't it? He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. Notice how throughout this psalm, it's the kings, it's the rulers, it's the leaders who are being singled out here for defeat. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the road, therefore he will lift up his head. It seems to be a bit of a sim similar to that image in verse 3. As the king goes forward in victory and battle, he'll need to refresh himself, so he'll bend down, he'll drink from the brook that will give him sustenance to keep going as he returns to go out in battle. So it's a picture of a blood thirsty battle. It's a battle in terms of an Old Testament fight, a fight that David has seen that he's witnessed many times as he's been in battle many times as a warrior. But David describes a battle where we see God giving his Messiah the authority to utterly and totally defeat his enemies. You know, we can see it's an example of what that looks like in the New Testament as we, and how what happens when we embrace that truth in Romans 12. There we read, you know, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul says that we're not to take revenge ourselves because we know that God will not let people get away with the wrong that they have done. Trusting in the ultimate power of the hero of Psalm 110 will mean that we will not always feel the need to vindicate ourselves. But you know, that's very hard for us to do. You know, whenever somebody wrongs us, whenever someone spreads lies about us, when someone attacks our integrity, you know, we want God to intervene. We want God to step in and defend us and show everyone that, look, I'm right and they're wrong. We want them to be publicly humiliated and admit that they're wrong. But, but you know, that rarely happens. And so we often take defending our name, we often take on the role of trying to prove our innocence but that usually means we do that by trying to destroy the people who have wronged us, trying to destroy the person who's wronged us. But knowing that God, the God of Psalm 110, He is in our corner, well, that should be enough for us. Knowing that He knows the truth, knowing that, that God knows what went down, He knows exactly what happened, that should be enough for us. Knowing that God will hold people accountable. If we feel that someone has wronged us and they're in the wrong, God will hold those people accountable for how they have treated us. And that, you know, I think that should provide us with all the comfort that we need knowing that. But then look at the way we're to fight. Look at how Paul continues. Look at the way we are to fight 
in the following verses. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I will repay, said the Lord. How do we have to fight? But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Therefore, do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. You know, what is spelt out in the language of the Old Testament battlefield in Psalm 110, it's echoed further in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. And this is the same truth of God taking vengeance, as back there in Psalm 110, of God taking vengeance on the last day. And there, you know, we read these verses. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. The rider, it's, it's called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery, fiery flame, and many th- crowned on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him in white horses, wearing pure white linen. Now, that kind of could be the same image there as back in verse 3 of the army, you know, following the Messiah in in, um, in Psalm 110. Uh, Verse 15, you know, we read that a, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We then read of how, you know, the beast, the kings of the earth, the armies, they all gathered to wage war against, against, the, against the Lord, against the rider and the horse and against the army. But, you know, the, the amazing thing is there isn't any battle. There isn't any contest. We just read simply that the beast is taken captive. He and the false prophet, you know, are thrown alive into the, the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Then in verse 21, we read, the, the rest were killed with the sword, that came from the mouth of the rider and the horse, and all the birds ate their flesh, of their, ate the fill of their flesh. Now, I know it's a, it's a, it's a picture language, you know, in, in the book of Revelation, but, you know, as you read through that, you know, what sort of impression does that language have on you? You know, whenever you read stuff like, you know, the rest were killed with a sword that came from the mouth of the rider and the horse, and all the birds, you know, ate their fill of their flesh, you know, how do you feel when you read those kind of words, maybe you feel a little bit embarrassed. Maybe you feel like it really, you know, it's a bit uncomfortable. It really shouldn't be in the Bible. But let me ask you another question. Do you ever burn with indignation because of what you hear about and what you see in the news? Do you ever burn with indignation when you're confronted with injustice right before you? You know, when you see mass graves of, of civilians being uncovered in Ukraine, when you hear about villages you know, being carpet bombed, when you hear about schools or railway stations being targeted, you know, in those moments, do you ever cry out to God to do something, to, to step in and do something? You know, whenever you realize that four out of 10 people who are boarding an airplane to fly to Thailand on any flight going out of Brisbane, they're going to Thailand for the sex trade. Four out of 10 people on an airplane here in Brisbane going to Thailand, and many of those is amongst minors. How do you feel about that? 
When you hear about people being trafficked in shipping containers, whole families suffocating to death, trying to get to freedom in shipping containers. I mean, do you ever yearn for those that take part in that to be held accountable, to be brought to justice? I mean, how do you feel, you know, over this past week of 22-year-old, you know, Masha Amini being arrested by the morality police in Iran for not wearing her hijab, her head covering properly, and then later dying in police custody? How do you feel about the fact that there are 300,000 Christians across the world today who, who, are, who have died this year because of their faith and trust that they have in Jesus Christ? How do you feel about the millions of Christians who are in prison today because of their faith across the world today? You know, whenever you hear about those kind of injustices, when you see that kind of injustice, you know, is there like a, a fist that welds up within you that just cries out and says, no, God, please do something. Please bring justice. Do you have a, a fist that can I punch at the end? God, please hold those leaders, hold those people accountable for what they are doing and for what they have done. You see, this psalm, along with Psalm Revelation 19, tells us that one day Jesus, God's king, he will put an end to everything that is evil, to everything and to everyone that stands in opposition to God. Those who think that they've escaped any kind of reper repercussions for what they have done in this life will come face to face with God's wrath. They will face the vengeance, the full vengeance of God's wrath in the next. Our cries of justice, our cries for due retribution will be meted out, but it won't be meted out by us because vengeance belongs to God. He says, I will repay, says the Lord. And you know, that brings us to the last point and to our problem. Because at some point, we too were enemies of God. Some of us here this evening, you know, we are still enemies of God. We are, and we were still hostile to God. We were even indifferent towards Him. We know that we have here been active in some way. We've been active participants in, you know, evil in this world. Not only have we been active participants, but we've also been passive participants as we've also just turned a blind eye when we've seen injustice. And so our dilemma this evening is, is that when we read in the Bible that the enemies of God are going to be crushed, we know that in our own hearts that we have also been an enemy of God. And how will we escape the righteous terror of the Lord? And the answer is found in the second, you know, spoken uh, statement from God in verse 4. There we read, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever, according to the pattern of Melchizedek. I mean, what is this assurance that God wants to give us? Well, it's an assurance to the rebel sinner that God has the power not only to destroy sin, but he also has the power, he has the authority to grant mercy and forgiveness to anyone 
who comes to him in repentance. What we have in verse 4 is the promise of the gospel in the midst of a world under God's righteous judgment. You know, the priest in the Old Testament um, was never a king. Um, some kings in the Old Testament, you know, tried sometimes to dabble in being priests. They didn't do a very good job of doing that. But here we're told that there is a king who is also going to be a new kind of priest. And we read that that's after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time this evening to explore what that means. If you want to go back, we, we did a series last year, the year before, on Hebrews. You can go back and you can see what that looks like. You can go back and do that yourself. But we're not going to do that this evening. But suffice to say that the one who has supreme power, the one who has supreme authority to judge, is also our high priest. He has carried away our sins and he also intercedes for us. And we see that clearly, you know, in the book of Hebrews, as Psalm 110, verse 4, it's repeated over and over and over again. And Hebrews 7, it's repeated two times uh, in verses 17 and 21. And then in verse 23, we read these words. Now, there have been many of those priests, you know, many of those Old Testament priests, since death prevented us from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, I think, you know, completely, he's able to save completely. What that means, I think, here is that he's able to do that forever to the end. He saves us when, at the beginning when we come to Christ as sinners and we ask for forgiveness but he's able to keep saving us in our lives, even though we continue to sin, you know, this side of heaven. And as we keep coming to God, he's always opening up the door for us. He's always enabling us to stand forever in God's holy presence, to move us from being an enemy to being a friend of God, to be in God's family. That's what Jesus has the power to do. And we read that such a, a high priest, you know, truly meets our need, one who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day by day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law, that is refer, that's the law that's referred to in Psalm 110, appointed this son who has been made perfect forever. You know, in Jesus, you know, we have a king who will not allow anyone to rebel against him forever. You know, there are, as we've seen this evening, startling, shocking consequences for turning our backs on God on this life and the next. I want to encourage you this, this evening, if you're here and you've never really considered you know, who God is, who Jesus is, that is a, the, probably the most important question you will ever be asked. Who is Jesus? How you answer that question will dictate how you live your life, how you, you will live for eternity. And to simply say, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, don't really care. It's not going to cut it. As we've seen this evening, it's not going to cut it. It may be 
good opportunity for you to come along to the story to kind of try and think through that question of what exactly, who exactly is Jesus? You know, there are startling consequences for turning our backs on him. But that same king, you know, who sits at the right hand of God in judgment, he's also not put off by people's hardness. He's not put off by people's hostility towards him. He's not put off by the fact that we come to him initially as his enemy. Rather, he pursues his enemies with his love, and he stands as a priest forever so that everyone who comes to him in repentance, everyone who comes to him immediately receives not judgment, but mercy and forgiveness and access into the very presence of God, access to sit at his table as his family, as his child forever. Jesus Christ is a king. He is a hero worth trusting in, worth believing. He is a hero who will never let us down. Let's pray. Just as we're coming to the Lord's Supper this evening, it's, it's probably worthwhile for us just to stop for a moment and, and think about, well, where do I stand with, with God this evening? Where do I stand with Jesus? Am I still an enemy? Am I still indifferent towards him? Tonight may be a good opportunity to, to come before him and to, to repent this evening and to turn away from, from just treating God like he's nothing or he's a lesser king. Asking him to forgive us and to come into our life this evening. Let's just spend a few moments just thinking about where we're standing with the Lord Jesus and how these words are speaking to us this evening, and then I'll, I'll just wrap up in prayer. Just spend a few moments where you are. Jesus, thank you so much that when we come to you, that we come to you as, as an enemy, someone who's hostile towards you, that you just don't push us away because of that hostility. But thank you for the way in which you've pursued us with your grace and with your love, that you have won us with your grace and with your love, that you've called us to become your children not just your children, Lord, you've called us to your table to be, to be your family, to be, to be your friend. And Lord, thank you so much for the way in which you've, you've pursued us. And thank you so much for the Lord Jesus, that through Christ, through his sacrifice, Lord, that we can come before you. We can be in your presence and can we rest in the assurance that we will be with you forever. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, as we've been reminded this evening, Lord, that, that evil, 
Lord, will not continue in this world. That in some day, Lord, sin, evil, death will be no more. And Lord, I know that sometimes we are tempted to, to, to vindicate ourselves and to Lord, I pray, Lord, please remind us this evening that you are in our corner, that you are fighting for us. And Lord, our hearts do cry out to you for justice. And Lord, I pray, Lord, please, as we cry out this evening, please help us to cry knowing that someday, Lord God, people will stand before you, that they will be held accountable, Father, for what they have done in this life. And Lord, that's not something that we can be proud about because we know that many we're all culpable in some ways, Father. But Lord, I pray, Lord, please help us as we know that. Lord, to keep calling those around us to put their faith and their hope and their trust in you, Lord Jesus, we pray. Thank you for saving us, for making us your children, for winning us, for wooing us with your love. Because we pray this in Jesus' name.